Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 157. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Before we get started, all the usual things. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. You can like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and you could subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go out and find all those things yourself, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you got all my social media buttons. Click on those, take you right to my social media account. While you're there, also give me a free email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show. Just go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights going, help keep the podcast going, all those kind of things. And, of course, you can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You can sign up there for free. And as you do that, you'll always get the coupons, discounts, anything I have going on for forthcoming classes. You can also purchase my classes there. I have one on Secession, one on Alexander Hamilton, which the book that that's based on I'll be talking about on today's podcast. And you can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to redbubble.com and looking for Brian McClanahan. you find all my Brian McClanahan Show gear, my new logo, all that stuff's out there, all kinds of cool things to get that stuff. And, of course, you can always go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, History.com. Subscribe there. You get a great website, probably the best educational value on the web. You've got over 20 classes at this point taught by great instructors, including yours truly, on history, economics, philosophy. So it's a great site, LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, History.com, and sign up there. It's a wonderful deal, and uh, you won't be disappointed. So this is actually a user or listener-generated episode, and it's something that uh, went through social media oh, a couple of weeks ago. The, the request was, not just to me directly, but to uh, several people, to come up with a succinct description of Marbury v. Madison, or at least a uh, discussion of Marbury v. Madison in a way that would refute some of the misconceptions about Marbury v. Madison. Now, in my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I talked about this, wrote about this, and it's an important part of the Hamiltonian legacy, and more importantly, the nationalist legacy of the United States. And so really what you get down to, if you get down to brass tacks and looking at what the problem is in, in interpretation of the Constitution, also of American history, is that you have the nationalist school, the nationalist school, which uh, is Hamilton, Marshall, Joseph Story, Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Webster, on down the line. And then you have those that insisted on a real federal republic, which were the Jeffersonians at one point, and then moving on beyond that. Even in the National School, you had people like Andrew Jackson. So it wasn't confined to the Federalists and then later the Republicans. There were still nationalists in both, both parties at different times or both factions at different times. So nationalism, as I point out in this book, really was the enemy of the Federal Republic, of the Constitution as ratified by the founding generation. Of course, that's the key. What Constitution was ratified? And it's nationalism that's at odds with that particular Constitution. So when you have someone like Donald Trump coming to office, he's a nationalist. Everybody that's been in the executive office since 1861 has been a nationalist. 
Um, there are shades of it. I mean, you could say that Grover Cleveland, for example, wasn't as much of a nationalist as Abraham Lincoln or any of the 20th century presidents. But certainly he was still a nationalist in, in different ways. You could say Calvin Coolidge was much more responsible to federalism than other presidents. So there were different shades of nationalists. And there were some, like Cleveland and Coolidge, who I talked about in my uh, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America as the four, two of the four good ones. They did try to arrest this headlong you know, plunge over the cliff into nationalism. But by that point, it was almost too late. Uh, and so we want something out of the executive branch that we're probably never going to get again in the modern era. I mean, we had it in the 19th century, but we're, it would be hard to see that we would get what we really want if you're an originalist in the United States today. So, that said, part of this process, though, was certainly the Supreme Court. And when I pitched this book originally, the entire book was going to be about the Supreme Court. Um, and the publisher wanted something a little different, so we threw Hamilton in there. And, of course, Hamilton took center stage in the book. And there's no doubt that Hamilton's nationalist vision as Secretary of the Treasury was an important part of making the government what it is today, at least in creating the blueprint. So I'm going to talk about this Marbury v. Madison case in relation to Marshall, John Marshall, who was certainly right there with Hamilton, in creating this nationalist vision for, for America through the court system, through the judicial branch, and through the legal system. Hamilton was doing it through politics, foreign policy behind the scenes, working with Washington, and of course a lot of his ideas would later be codified, and the Congress would pick up on these things. So uh, that was important. But Marshall is making all of this work ultimately through the federal court system, and then it was not just Marshall, but then Joseph Story. And then in the 20th century, it was Hugo Black, among others who created this very nationalist vision of what America should be. Top-down, one-size-fits-all government. This is why Americans are angry on the left and the right, because they don't understand that, and particularly in such a divided polity, and America, I think in some ways, as people are starting to realize, is more divided than ever, ever particularly on social issues. I don't think America's ever been this divided um, on social issues. You know, people would say, well, yeah, what about in the, in the 19th century of slavery? Well, they weren't really that divided. In fact, if you read Larry Tise's pro-slavery, you'll find that uh, Americans, as he says in that book, and Larry Tise is no pro-Southern author, he said, look, pro-slavery is not the cause of the war. That was a nationalist position. Essentially, you found pro-slavery north and south. So there was some political disputes there, but it wasn't a social dispute at that point. Again, this is the Michael Holt position. It's all about power. But certainly, uh, when you look at what Marshall is doing in, in creating this top-down structure and creating a national government, because that's what he wanted, Marbury v. Madison is at the heart of that. Now, there's some misconceptions about this particular case, and so I'll talk about some of that. And again, this is part of one of the chapters I wrote in the book. It's, um, I'm going to go through that chapter. Now, I do have my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America as a course at McClanahan Academy, and if you are on my email list, you would have gotten an email a couple of days ago talking about how I'm giving away for, I'm actually giving you 75% off the course if you order a couple of books. You just got to give me a screenshot of the couple of books that you order. If you order one, I'll give you a free ebook. So uh, going out there and, and uh, get on my email list, and uh, you want that because I give stuff like that out every now and then. You get on there and you get this stuff. So let's talk about Marbury v. Madison. Now, for those of you that don't know anything about the case, 
we have to go back to the John Adams administration. So John Adams is president. He's lost the election in 1800. Uh, he, in fact, finished in third. And it's often considered that he finished in second, but he, in fact, finished in third place. So he is the lame duck president. And in that time, the Congress is also going to change hands. The Republicans, the Jeffersonians, are going to assume power in the Congress. So the Federalists are on their way out. And the Federalists at the time viewed the Jeffersonians, viewed the, the men who were in that faction as terrorists, as Jacobins. In fact, John Marshall called them that. And so they had these fears of these Jacobins running all over the countryside with many guillotines that are just going to chop all their heads off. It was crazy, but this is what they thought. And so in their mind, they had to do something to potentially arrest this revolutionary change in American government because it was a revolution. People used to call this the Jeffersonian Revolution. And they, they thought of it that way. We've got to do something. It was a bloodless revolution, but a revolution nevertheless because you're having a faction come into power that had not been in power, that had different views on the role of the central authority, ostensibly. You can make a case that you know, Jefferson became very much like Hamilton in his second term. But certainly, on the surface, this is going to be a cataclysmic shift in the powers of the central authority. So, they get to work passing legislation. One of the pieces of legislation they pass is an updated Judiciary Act. And in that Judiciary Act, they created a whole slew of new federal court appointments. So they're doing this to keep Federalists on the bench. And not just that, John Adams is going to put John Marshall on the Supreme Court as Chief Justice. Now, this is very important because if he had not done this and that position stayed open, we actually talked about this. Well, should the president, uh, should the outgoing president put, a, put somebody on there or should we decide, you know, who wins the election, blah, 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 all these, or who controls the Congress, these kind of things. John Adams clearly said, no, I'm going to put who I want to on the bench, and I'm going to put John Marshall on the bench. Now, if he had not done that and Jefferson was able to choose, he was going to pick Spencer Rowan, which would have forever changed the entire structure of the federal court system. This is one of the great coups in American history. One of the things that people don't often focus on, of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you might already know this. Maybe you've uh, read Kevin Goodsman's books, or maybe you've listened to Mike Church uh, when he used to talk about this kind of thing. But Spencer Rowan was going to be Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court had Jefferson assumed the presidency and that position had not been filled. So by putting John Marshall on there, it stops Jefferson cold in his tracks. You also have all these new federal judges. Now the problem with this is that the Secretary of State at the time, who was charged with delivering all of these new appointments, is none other than John Marshall. So he's actually double-dipping, essentially, for a time. So John Marshall has to deliver all these appointments. He's going to assume his seat on the bench. And before he can do it, he doesn't deliver all the appointments. And in question were several for these justice of the peace positions in the District of Columbia. I mean, minor, minor court positions. This is really nothing major. This is something that Marshall thinks, ah, this is, this is a shoe in. Uh, they're, they're just going to deliver these. I'm going to leave a whole stack of these things on the desk, on my desk, when Jefferson gets into office, he'll just have to he'll just have to send him out. Well, when Jefferson gets into the office and he sees this stack of appointments sitting on his desk that were unfulfilled, he just kind of shuffles them off the desk into the trash can. And well, 
Never saw them. They weren't here. So you've got all these justices of the peace now. You've got all these appointments that didn't get filled. And one of them was a man named William Marbury. So for 10 months, he waited for his appointment to be delivered. It never showed up. So several prominent Federalists persuaded Marbury. He didn't really want to do this, but they persuaded Marbury to go after a writ of mandamus, which is uh, Latin for we command, um, demanding that the Secretary of State, now James Madison, deliver those appointments. Now, Madison refused. Madison refused to do it. Jefferson said, I don't have to do it. So now this is a constitutional crisis. Can the Supreme Court compel the executive branch to do anything in a writ of mandamus? Can it do it? And so that's really the basis of the Marbury v. Madison case. This is a conflict between the judicial branch and the executive branch that's ostensibly going to be decided in the federal court system. So it was over a year or so before the court actually took up this case, and it finally did in 1803. And as I write in, the, in my Hamilton book, um, Marshall showed up late in the shovel. This is what Marshall was. Marshall was a slob. There's no other way to put it. John Marshall was a slob. He was uh, an important figure, an imposing figure, a great legal mind, I think wrong on many things, but he was a slob. <laughs> Uh, and now, Marshall was also revolutionary in the court system beyond this. There's one thing that Marshall did. He reorganized the decision system. So now you're going to have one decision, one decision for the majority and one decision for the minority. Now, before this, every Supreme Court justice issued their own decision. He had to kind of sort this out and figure out what they meant. But Marshall streamlines all that and creates the majority-minority system. That's important because we're going to get the majority opinion written in this case by John Marshall. Now, remember, John Marshall, now a Supreme Court Chief Justice, he's the guy that failed to deliver the appointment. So if he was really a man of principle, he would have recused himself from the case because this actually involved him. He didn't do his job, and now Madison's saying, I don't have to do it. You didn't do your job, so I don't have to do your job for you. So, Marshall actually delivers his opinion, the majority, unanimous majority opinion, in February of 1803. And so the key issue in the case is whether the Supreme Court had the ability and the authority to issue a writ of mandamus. Uh, Marshall said they didn't, but he wrote this in the majority opinion. He said, he's, first, he said, Marshall emphatically declared that it was, quote, the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must, of necessity, expound and interpret the rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the court must decide on the operation of each. So Marshall is saying here that the court, by default, is going to expound and interpret the law. Now keep that in mind, because James Madison had something to say about that at one point. He says the court is going to expound and interpret the law. So this short statement defines judicial review. But remember, at this point, it's only a federal law that's under review by the Supreme Court, not a state law. That was the key to everything involving judicial review. Could the Supreme Court, and, I'll get, and as I get into in this book 
later on, as I've talked about. Could the Supreme Court invalidate a state law? That's the real kicker. But at this particular point, even there's some dispute about whether the Supreme Court could even do what they're doing here. He then goes on, quote, If then the courts are to regard the Constitution, and the Constitution is superior to any ordinary act of the legislature, the Constitution, and not such ordinary act, must govern the case to which they both apply. And so he said that uh, because the Judiciary Act of 1789 conflicted with Article 3 of the Constitution regarding the ability of Congress to grant the Supreme Court the power to issue a writ of mandamus, that portion of the law was unconstitutional and therefore invalid. So a lot of people look at this and say, ah, yeah, this is Supreme Court's originalist position. Stand up and cheer, conservatives in particular. Marbury v. Madison, this is important because we don't want the legislature or anybody else going off the rails. We want to strike down unconstitutional legislation. Well, that's great. I remember back when Obamacare was up uh, and people were talking about it, and they're not really talking about it anymore. But when people are actually talking about this thing being unconstitutional, John McCain which, of course, if you, if you follow it, and Tom Woods on social media, it's Woods Law, where no matter who you vote for, you get John McCain. But John McCain stood up and said, we're going to fight this in the courts. Well, that's because that's when, this is what conservatives want to do. They look at Marbury v. Madison, and they say there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, it's like one in a million, maybe. So then Marshall goes on. I'm going to read to you. What else he said during this case? And again, people would, would look at this and say, that's strict construction. So let's, let's listen to what he said. He said, quote, The powers of the legislature are defined and limited, and that those limits may not be mistaken or forgotten, the Constitution is written. To what purpose are powers limited, and to what purpose is that limitation committed to writing, if these limits may at any time be passed by those intended to be restrained? The distinction between a government with limited and unlimited powers is abolished if those limits do not confine the persons on whom they are imposed, and if acts prohibited and acts allowed are of equal obligation. It is a proposition too plain to be contested that the Constitution controls any legislative act repugnant to it, or that the legislature may alter the, con the Constitution by an ordinary act. This is marvelous what he's saying there. Of course, he's saying the Constitution is there to limit powers, and you hear that all the time. Written constitution limits powers, and you can't go beyond those powers. So, yeah, great, strict construction. This is what Marshall's saying. And in this particular point, he's, he's dead on. Accurate. He then continued, Those who controvert the principle that the Constitution is to be considered in court as a paramount law are reduced to the necessity of maintaining that courts must close their eyes on the Constitution and see only the law. This doctrine would subvert the very foundation of all written constitutions. It would be giving the legislature a practical and real omnipotence. So he's saying that uh, the legislature would just run over everybody else if there wasn't some check on it. Again, we would all say, yeah, that's true. There has to be a check on legislative power. There has to be a check on executive power. There has to be a check on judicial power. There has to be a check on all of these things. The question is, who's going to check them? Who's going to check them? And that's where you get to the states. Now, uh, the hope was, even in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, that if an independent federal judiciary would strike down unconstitutional laws. And remember, well, you may not know this, but Virginia had judicial review within, its, within the state itself. So this was not foreign to them, not alien. But there were other states like Delaware that didn't have it, and they didn't want it. They didn't want judicial review. They didn't like the whole idea. 
So there was some debate in the Philadelphia Convention, there was some debate in the ratifying conventions as to whether this was a good idea or not. And then, of course, we have to understand uh, that this still didn't deal with the states. As I write in my Hamilton book, quote, but what Marshall had ultimately done was undermine the arguments both Jefferson and Madison had made in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, and he knew it. If the federal judiciary had exclusive power to judge the acts of both the legislative and executive branches, as Marshall insisted it had, there was no power under the sun to stop it from unconstitutionally becoming the most powerful branch of government and from running roughshod over the states. Jefferson viewed the states as a fourth leg of government with the ability and duty to legislate in all matters not expressly delegated to the general government. He said as much in letter after letter. We also have to understand that judicial review was an assumed power, an implied power. It's not expressly granted by the text of the document. And because the court had been politicized in the months before Jefferson's inauguration, it was now the home of unelected political hacks insistent on bending the Constitution to meet their political agenda. Nothing has changed in 200-plus years. This is essentially what we have. Now, a leading uh, newspaper, Republican newspaper in Boston, sniffed this out and cautioned its readers to accept the decision at their own peril. This is what they wrote, quote, The efforts of federalism to exalt the judiciary over the executive and legislature and to give that favorite department of political character and influence may operate for a time to come, as it, already, as it has already, to the promotion of one party and the depression of the other. Politics are more improper and dangerous in a court of justice than in the pulpit. So they, they saw what was happening here. The entire federal judiciary is being politicized. We don't want that, but that's essentially what you're going to get. You're going to have a politicized judiciary. There was another series of letters written in the Washington Federalist that said this, quote, If it had been intended to confer this preeminent power, judicial review, on the judiciary, would not those great and wise men who composed the convention have given it by marked expression as they have given to the president the limited veto and not left them to assume, as they do now, from interference the unlimited This particular writer also attacked John Marshall. He said, quote, Such an interpretation not only corrupts the text, but destroys the compact. There is enough to satisfy these words without resorting to this broad construction. The clause may refer solely to questions properly judiciary and not to those which impinge on, upon legislative jurisdiction. The writer here in, in this case understood that Congress may pass illegal acts but he did not believe it was the job of the federal judiciary to arrest such tyranny. Quote, no, sir. When it comes to this, other tribunals than five judges must be resorted to. <clears throat> A people who deserve liberty and have it ought to know how to preserve it. If they do not and willingly bend their neck to the yoke, they ought to lose it. End quote. And so this is where the states came into play. How could the states do this? That's what Jefferson and Madison were insisting in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. The same thing this writer is writing in, in the Philadelphia, I'm sorry, the Washington Federalist following the decision. The people had to do it. You couldn't just rely on some branch of government to do the job for you. 
you had to rely on something outside of the federal government to check the federal government. The only thing powerful enough to check a government is another government, and it has to be the states. And this writer is saying, look, the people are going to have to do this. This could be dangerous at times. There's going to be conflict here. But the people have to be willing to do it. If they don't, if they do not and willingly bend their neck to the yoke, they ought to lose it. So here you have a different generation of men. These men had fought the British in the American War for Independence. They had seceded from the British Empire. Many of them had lost their lives doing so. They were certainly interested in arresting tyranny when they saw it and by any means necessary. They weren't as decadent as we are today. And, of course, you can say, well, they didn't have all the structure in place that we have today where we think that we can just use the court system. That's much peace, much, much more peaceful and preferable, and I agree. Using the court system or having a government check another government and solving this in a different way is a much more, is a, is a highly preferable way to do business other than to have to resort to violence. Nobody wants to resort to violence. That's an awful thing. So we should come up with a different way to do it what we really need is education and people to understand real federalism. Now, judicial review, as I said, was discussed at the Philadelphia Convention. Uh, the Delaware delegation was against it, though the uh, Virginia delegation was, act was actually for it. Now, here's what Madison said. I'm going to read you what Madison said in Philadelphia in 1787 and then compare that with what John Marshall said in Marbury and Madison. Madison said this. He said, quote, judicial review ought to be, quote, limited to cases of a judiciary nature. The right of expounding the Constitution in cases not of this nature ought not to be given to that department. Remember what Marshall said. Marshall said the court could expound the Constitution. So you have a major contradiction in terms here. Both men are from Virginia. Marshall had actually spoken in the Virginia Ratifying Convention that there was going to be some type of judicial review. He said that. And Patrick Henry applauded but he also promised it wouldn't apply to the states. But here is Madison saying uh, you know, it only has to be a judiciary nature. Now, what does that mean? That means the Supreme Court is an appellate court, and they're only going to look at procedure, right? So if somebody doesn't get a fair trial in a lower court, and that goes to the higher court, they can say, well, they didn't get a fair trial, overturn that. They're not actually expounding on the law. They're not saying what the law is. They're simply saying that person didn't get a fair trial. The due process wasn't followed, et cetera, et cetera. That's all that Madison believed that should happen in that Supreme Court. This is how Jefferson interpreted it. In 1804, he wrote, Nothing in the Constitution has given the judges a right to decide for the executive more than to the executive to decide for them. The opinion which gives the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional and what not not only for themselves and their own sphere of action, but for the legislature and executive also and their spheres, would make the judiciary a despotic branch. And then 20 years later, Jefferson reiterated that the practice of Judge, Judge Marshall of traveling out of his case to prescribe what the law would be in a moot case not before the court is very irregular and very censorable. This case of Marbury v. Madison is continually cited by Bench and Barr as if it were settled law without any adamant version on his being merely an obiter dissertation of the Chief Justice. Roger Sherman, known as the Atlas because he never said anything stupid, the great Atlas, said in the Philadelphia Convention he disapproved of judges meddling in politics and parties, and that's exactly what's going on here. Now, it didn't mean that that was settled 
opinion because there were several individuals in several different states, Connecticut, North Carolina, for example, even Virginia, that in the ratifying convention said Pennsylvania. Well, the Supreme Court, something has to check federal power. This is how the Constitution was sold. There has to be a backstop. There has to be something that says if the government goes beyond its bounds, something has to stop it. So under an originalist interpretation, you could make an argument that judicial review of federal law is something that can happen. Now, you can also take the Jeffersonian position. I argue in the book that that's a reasonable position to take, that there should be an originalist position. There should be judicial review. This is how it was argued in the ratifying conventions, and the founding generation wasn't surprised, the majority of them, that this was going to happen. But it does not mean that the states cannot be part of this as well. And This is essentially what Madison and Jefferson were saying. Why cannot the people of the states decide if that law is unconstitutional? If it clearly is unconstitutional, if it's a clear violation of any of the amendments to the U.S. Constitution, if the federal government has violated its powers, why, can this, why cannot the states step in and do the exact same thing? That question was never answered. And certainly, when you look at what Jefferson had to say over and over again, and what other members of the founding generation, not just Jefferson, but to a man, had said about federal power, and said about state power vis-a-vis federal power, the federal government, even as John Marshall said, had limited and defined powers. And if they went beyond those powers, those laws should be null and void. And the case where there's no clear authority for the general government to do anything, then that law is unconstitutional, and somebody has to stop it. If the, if the federal court system won't do it, then the states have got to do it. And the states can actually act first in doing it, and according to Jefferson and Madison. They just won't enforce that law within their borders. It doesn't mean the law is void for everyone else. It just means that law is void in those borders of those states. Or that state, whatever the case may be. So this is a very interesting topic and one that I don't think people fully understand. Now, Marshall would go off the rails and declare a state law unconstitutional. That's coming, and I get get into that in the book several different occasions. And so this was a very dangerous, slippery slope to get you to that position. But Marshall had actually argued that wouldn't happen in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, even though he was saying the judicial review probably would happen in the same convention of federal law. And at Marbury Madison, that's all you're talking about. Now, it doesn't mean that the states can't do this as well. So there are some misconceptions about this particular decision and what that decision means. And I hope I was able to, through going through this part of this chapter that I wrote on this, talk about those misconceptions and talk about why conservatives or even you know, progressives might like this decision. I mean, they, they could say, well, I mean, this is important. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of misinformation about what this law actually means or this decision actually means for the future of federalism. And some people had pointed out what's going to happen, and they were exactly right. And, of course, Jefferson and Madison disagreed. And Marshall was doing this essentially to strike down the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions, which he did not agree with. He was looking at judicial review as a way to block that particular position, ultimately, even though he didn't come out and say that. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. (laughs) 